Is It Rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone, she's our guest, academic and author, Professor Pamela Thirschwell. In the courtroom of honor, the judge pounded his gavel to show that all's equal and that the courts are on the level and that the strings and the books ain't pulled and persuaded and that even the nobles get properly handled. Once that the cops have chased after it and caught him and that the ladder of law has no top and no bottom. He stared at the person who killed for no reason, who just happened to be feeling that way without warning. And he spoke through his cloak, most deeped and distinguished, and handed out strongly for penalty and repentance. William Zenzinger, a six-month sentence. Oh, you who philosophize disgrace and criticize all fears, bury the rag deep in your face. Now is the time for your tears. Uh, sadly, great and still appropriate lyrics. Um, yeah. Pam, why did you uh, choose those? Or maybe I've said Yeah, it it's the partly the appropriateness of it and partly because the Dylan I really love now is more the kind of mid-60s through early 70s, up to blood on the tracks, blonde on blonde Dylan. And recently I've been turning back to those early, unbelievably amazing political songs and thinking about how relevant they still are. And it was really interesting. I don't know if either of you saw this movie called Sorry to Bother You, a really great film by this uh, filmmaker named, Black filmmaker named Boots Riley about, and and there's a moment in the film, one of the stars of the film, Tessa Thompson, wears these amazing earrings and on her ear and they they say things on the earrings and on one of them it says bury the rag and the other one says deep in your face this, yeah. is, your twi- this is your twitter wallpaper right because i was going to ask you about twi- this yeah that actually is my twitter wallpaper is a scene from this film and it, it just seemed really great to me that uh you know radical black filmmaker would be sort of up on how great this song is so that's that's why I chose it partly because there are others that are closer to me in my heart and in my own personal experience with Dylan, but I absolutely love this song and I think it's brilliant and its its relevance is still there. So where did you speaking of your your background, you can can you tell us what's the other song that's really relevant and 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 goes into your background and and where where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I grew up in the suburbs outside of Philadelphia, very upper middle class suburbs. And luckily, I think like many people who have, you know, uh, have early experiences with Dylan, it's because you have older siblings, right? Yeah. So I had older brothers, and one of whom was obsessed with Dylan and was listening to it all the time. So yeah, and that's my, my background is very sort of ordinary suburban, growing up as a, as a child in the 70s, and then a sort of teenager into the 80s and picking up on the, the earlier stuff. What was another song that... that oh, God, so many. I mean, one of the early things that I remember is listening to him singing Everybody Must Get Stoned and not knowing what stoned meant, right? Because <laughs> I was, you know, yeah. seven and my yeah. older brother yeah. was listening to this all the time. <laughs> um, he had the... I Like, it was really... Actually, I was I was talking about it to my brother the other day because I was sort of reminiscing and, and trying to remember. There were certain songs that he listened to all the time, um, Stuck Inside a Mobile with the Memphis Blues again was one that was sort of on endless repeat in the house when I was when I was young enough. But also it was Greatest Hits Volume 1 and Volume 2 that I think mm-hmm. I heard first before I, it, I... I think those albums are interesting because I think people often listen to them like maybe when... Or that's your, your intro to Dylan and then mm-hmm. 
you go listen to Blonde on Blonde and Blood on the Tracks and bring it all back home. And then you kind of lose those albums. But remembering how they kind of come to you, I think, is really interesting. One of my absolute early favorites was Positively Fourth Street, actually, just because I, it was just so great to hear someone so pissed off. And I think when you're a teenage girl, you're often pissed off at your friends in one form or another. And just to, <laughs> to hear someone's, you know, you know what a drag it is to see you. you know? Yeah, I was I was listening to it the other day, and. Uh, I, and I'm also rewatching um, The Sopranos, and it really reminded me of one of those scenes where they beat the guy up, and he's lying there, and they give him one last kick in the kishkas. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Because yeah. in fact, I was reciting the, the the lines to to my wife the other day. I was like, explaining about uh, that particular song and the appeal, mm-hmm. and you know the, the the lead up to that. I, if only for one, just one time, you could stand inside my shoes and I could see, you know, what it was like to be you. Yeah. And, and I could see that her, her face began to sort of um, smile, like this is going to be, we would understand each other and there would be world <laughs> peace. Right, exactly. <laughs> but then I gave her the punchline and, and her face fell. And, you know, no, Dylan, it's not a big, it's not a big empathy, sympathy thing with him, but it is, it's that, it, it, that it's the lead up which makes it. I think in the same way that something like, don't think twice it's all right it's the beauty of the song which kind of there's such a kicker in that ending you know so it's the the two things seem to go together for him so you wrote a lot about mean dylan i mean i've read (laughs) this paper any other examples of mean dylan that you enjoy or that you have trouble with i oh there's there's tons really like i went through a long period where i could not listen to idiot wind even though i actually think it's brilliant song it was just like it was, it was just sort of too much, I guess that, but that combination, I mean, I think the thing he does when he's mean, which is both brilliant and sort of really hard is he kind of takes on this almost biblical voice, right? Like, mm. you know, what was it? I, I knew that the, the ceremony that your corrupt ways has finally made you blind, you know? I mean, that's so amazing. Like where, where are you standing that you can speak that way? Right. Like he's he's so, you know, is that there's a sort of godlike uh, knowledge that he has. I mean, the thing that saves Idiot Wind for me, though, is the fact that he's also he's saying we are idiots. babe. Mm. Right. Yeah. There's a kind of moment in it. I was listening to his stuff in terms of meanness um, the other mm-hmm. day and I came across I'm not a big fan of the uh, Christian Dylan because he's uh, I find it a, a lot of times tedious but also, he's he's very mean. I came across, right. uh, he's the property of Jesus. Resent him to the bone. You got something better. You got a heart of stone. <laughs> Which just sounds like, a, a again, a teenage girl, a bitchy teenage girl talking to her friend or something. I don't that's, think it's his finest hour. That's really interesting. There's a sort of like, I mean, if you think about it in terms of Dylan's religious proclivities, then there's the Old Testament, sort of the Jewish Dylan, and the, and the the Old Testament God is a mean God, right? Like mm. he's responsible for Job, the New Testament God, which is what he's he's doing in his you know when he's in his born again phase, is the Christian God of forgiveness. And there's <laughs> there's things to be said for both of them, mm. but I, I think that that there's there's a way in which like thinking about that the meanness might be a really interesting way to thinking about what he's doing in his kind of religious phases. Well, you talked about his his sneer being mm-hmm. exhilarating as well in, in things like Positively Fourth Street. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm guessing, I mean, do you know the song Ballad in Plain D, the, the one on another side of Bob Dylan, where he just 
takes apart Susie Rotolo's sister. Yes. That, I mean, that is, that's yeah, the crossing the line, isn't it? There's, there's no exhilaration there. That's just, just nasty. There's a lot of crossing the line. And sometimes I think even the ones that are supposed to be, the ones that kind of get, like, I have to say one that I really kind of hate, even though I still think it's great, is um, Mama, You've Been On My Mind, mm. right? Because that's like, it's like he's containing her, right? It's like, I can tell you, I'm, I'm holding you in my mind. I know what you're thinking and feeling. I'm the one who's in charge yeah. here. And I think there's there's a lot of that, you know. And the, the, I mean, Dylan and women go together with Dylan and meanness. And it's, it's a very complicated set of feelings about being a young, for me, young feminist in the making, 13-year-old girl realizing how the world is set up and wanting to do something about it. And at the same time, like my favorite artists were Dylan, the Rolling Stones, Elvis Costello. It was really, it was like not a good setup for, I, you know, it took me a long time to come to like Joni Mitchell, you know, and mm, yeah. I was, so I, I, I find that quite kind of interesting to think about actually. Yeah. I mean, whatever we may think about Dylan, I mean, the, the Stones with songs like Stray Cat Blues are just mm-hmm. indefensible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I think with this, with the stones, there isn't that other side. But I I think with Dylan, even with his meanest songs, somehow there's something in the tune or something. I mean, I I know, for instance, uh, Mama, you've been on my mind. I I don't know if you've heard Betty Levette's version of it. Oh, no, I haven't actually. It's absolutely brilliant. It's actually heartrending because, I mean, she spoke about it in that she was Mm -hmm. thinking about her mother and singing the same words. And it's kind of, it's kind of heartbreaking yeah. and it's beautiful and it, and it doesn't have seemingly any meanness to it at all. It's the same, it's more or less the same words. She, she changes the words, uh, when she does her Dylan versions. But, um, but I do think with Dylan, like even, you know, to bring up, uh, just like a woman, there's something to me about the music that makes it, uh, not acceptable, but, um, beautiful actually yeah. there's a beauty to the music despite the you know the possible sentiments which i i don't I, know what I, do you make of it i mean i i totally agree with that and i you know i started out really loving just like a woman and then slowly kind of turning around on and just being like i can't take the lyrics but i love the sound but but i think what you were saying before about there's sort of a kicker at the end right at the end of mama you've been on my mind which is which is not mean but really I guess maybe the word is dangerous for young women because it's like, I, can you see yourself as clear as someone who has had you on his mind mm. is sort of like taking away any kind of agency yeah. from the young girl. And of course, mm. you know, no one reads like in a sense, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bad example of a, of a listener as a, yeah, because I was like, whatever, an English professor in the making. And I wanted to listen closely to lyrics and really think about them. But there's a kind of, I think there's a way of being um, smart that's really dangerous. <laughs> you know, like it's the really good songs that pull you in and make you think that um, th- this smart guy will like me and I can I can be his shelter from the storm. Right? That's the, yeah. the danger of a certain kind of Dylan-esque appeal, maybe. Yeah. Guys, yeah. I just have to. Can I? I'm just. I don't. Can you hear my cat? Because um, I'm now holding him in order that he doesn't trump all over my keyboard. The cat is welcome. I, I think yeah. the cat. I'm sure has good Dylan. Kind okay, of as long as he has. I mean, there's a lot of purring action. <laughs> it's, it's fine. It's fine. Okay, so I, I 
please go on. <laughs> go, go, that control thing. I mean, it's, it's like, right. I, I, was it Rufus Jones saying about uh, just like a woman, I think, when, you know, nobody feels any pain. It's that thing right. of saying, whatever your feelings are, you know, they're nothing compared right. to me, the male yeah. narrator. Yes. <laughs> and that's the same kind of arrogance, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's an it's an arrogance. And it's also the mark of a great storyteller, right? It's the mark of someone who's got a really strong narrative voice, who's going to pull you into their world, which Dylan really has. But um, I had never heard that line that way until I listened to that. uh, Mm. So listen to what Rufus Jones said, I thought that's really, that's pretty convincing, actually. And what about, um, I know you've written about uh, Baby Blue, Mm. which is the same, has has some similarities, I Mm. think, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the... There's something really interesting about the way he sets up these sort of surreal situations, but there's there's sort of in the middle of these kinds of surreal situations, there's a woman like, you know, taking all your blankets from the floor. There's a kind of, there's, you know, so on the one hand, it's it's something more like the, the weirdness of something like Visions of Joanna or Desolation Row, but at the same time, there's this story which is really like the women kind of needs to be put down. I also really want to talk about how much I love Dylan too. It's very conflicted. I don't, you know, so I, I have this incredibly, I, to me at least, interesting mixed feelings, which I think are interesting to explore too. But yeah, he understands your orphan with his gun is always a, a line that utterly killed me um it's is putting like what does it mean to have an orphan does that mean you're dead like is the woman who is addressed in that line a kind of ghost of a mother there's something really there's something really strange and fascinating going on i i know you wrote in your paper about the the vagabond who's rapping at your door is mm. the clothes that you once yes, wore. right and when i read that i thought you know sometimes these lines because the whole song is is one big mysterious mm. surreal uh, poem, uh, but um, you 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 wrote about how the, you know it's the mirror image who might be is mocking her with his transvestism possibly, uh, which I found mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> Great, I'm glad to hear that. It's yeah, well, the transvestism. I I am also interested in the the sort of the the, the moments of a kind of queerness of Dylan too, which you, mm. you see when you watch the movies and Allen Ginsberg is this kind of hovering figure, this, this idea that one of the things that's, that's going on in the kind of great mid to late sixties sort of surreal Dylan is the sort of possibility of shifting positions constantly. Mm. And that is one of the things that I do think saves him when he's going really mean is the, the we are idiots, babe, the comeback. It's not just about mm. you. It's yeah. it's not just you. It's me. Right. It's that. And casting Kate Blanchett as, as ah. mid sixties Dylan in I'm Not There kind of it works far better than you anyone could have thought because there is there is that fragility and that femininity as well mm-hmm. as the harshness, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And all of this kind of crossing with his Jewishness, with the, which I also love because I'm also Jewish. The, that sort of sense of him uh, just to, like not being. Uh, you know, not, well, obviously he must have really looked back then not like the other pop stars we've seen so <laughs> far. Um, very, very different. And the, the fragility being a part of that, but not, but then turning away from the the kind of, not fragility, but but some sort of softness you get with the folk the folk song, um, the, the, the Pete Seeger version, you know, the, mm. the, the early folk years in Greenwich Village and that, that he's not that image because he's also mean, right? He's got <laughs> this, sort of, this cut through of, of 
kind of contempt for people who are his listeners and the people who mm. love him. It's interesting thinking about the, uh, well, we almost interviewed Danny Field on, on the podcast. I don't know if you know him, but he, he's in all, if you read uh, anything about Patti Smith or Andy Warhol mm-hmm. or indeed The Doors, he was the publicist for Electro Records uh, and he was like everywhere. And he, we found him uh, living in London last year and we're going to talk to him on the podcast, but he wasn't really a Bob Dylan fan, but he did give us the insight because he was around the factory when uh, Dylan, uh, you know, would pop in and said, Andy Warhol, you know, we're talking about Dylan's queerness or gay, mm-hmm. you know, images. Dylan wasn't particularly comfortable, Danny Fields felt, uh, with the the gay scene that was mm-hmm. happening there. But uh, but yet, you know, there's there's all these uh, these images because I think he, you know, he tries to incorporate the whole world in his songs. Right, right. Well, that's, to, to, to bring it up to the present day, that's the, what I really like about his I Contain Multitudes on the, the new album is this mm-hmm. sense of an identification with Walt Whitman, who was both like an incredibly, you know, wonderful queer poet, but part of his queerness was taking in America, right? He's going to love everything about America. And Dylan doesn't have that love. There's a much more sort of skeptical attitude and, and quite that song's quite funny. But the fact that he's quoting Whitman and thinking about this is fascinating to me and, and seems really like the right thing for him to be doing at this point in his career is something as a song like that, actually. I was reading on Twitter last week about um, Emma Swift, who's done a oh, great yeah. cover of that song, which mm-hmm. will not be on the, this show's Spotify playlist because she's vehemently anti-Spotify. None of her music's available right. mm-hmm. on streaming services, yeah. but it's a fantastic album and worth, you know, worth getting. It's called Blonde on the Track. Blonde on the Tracks, I there saw that. Go. It looks good. I have Swift. to listen. Yeah. The, 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 I mean, the covers of One of Us Must Know and Sad Out Lady of the Lowlands, particularly the former, I have to say, are just, just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. The whole mm-hmm. thing's great. But she said that she, on Twitter at the moment, she's just having to deal with an awful lot of men mansplaining Walt Whitman and William Blake <laughs> because she dared cover I Contain oh. Multitudes and I can only imagine what those comments must be like. I, it's, it, it's really, uh, yeah, it's a, the, the mansplaining Dylan position is one that is familiar to me in, yeah. my, <laughs> in my career as a, as a Dylan fan, I have to say. The, the, other, the other person, I'm just wondering if you're talking about kind of women who sort of doing stuff with Dylan. Do you know Amy Rigby's stuff? No, at all. Amy, oh, so she had this great album called Diary of a Mod Housewife back in the 90s, I think. Oh. Um, but she's her most recent album um, is called The Old Guys. And it's kind of her, like, exp- I, I, I really identify with her. It's sort of expressing a kind of love for all these, you know, old white guys who are kind of her heroes, although she, she's got some doubts about them too. But she has a song which is called From Philip Roth at Gmail to Robert Zimmerman at AOL.com. Oh. <laughs> you got to listen to it. It's about like Philip Roth not getting the Nobel Prize and Dylan getting it. And it's really kind of great. I mean, it's all in the voice of Roth just saying like, I've been working at this for years. You know, it's, it's <laughs> I would highly recommend, but I do, I like it when sort of women reinterpreting the the, 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 the issues, the gender issues around Dylan, I think is a very good thing. And I, I yeah. look forward to listening to the Emma Swift album. Well, Emma Swift, I mean, for example, she doesn't change the gender in any of the songs, whereas right. with Betty Lovett, she does. And she, mm-hmm. and she rewrites mm-hmm. whole chunks of them and, and, and modernizes them. So it's just a different way of looking at it, I suppose. 
By the way, before we go away from Baby Blue, I've just got to ask you one thing as somebody who studied the song intently and intensely. A while ago, um, yeah. A while ago. Well, there there is no answer to this, I'm sure. But I find the most perplexing metaphor for me in in all of Dylan is reindeer armies. All your reindeer armies are all going home. Going home. What the fuck? What that, you're right. That doesn't, like, I had not thought about that one, actually. Um, what it, you know the phrase reindeer games, which is a great phrase to no, talk about. No, I don't. Oh, so as in, like, as um, in uh, Rudolph the Red and his reindeer. Yes. Yeah. Right. But people. Oh, reindeer games. Reindeer right. games okay. right. People <laughs> sometimes use it as like, oh, just stop playing your reindeer games with me. Right. You know, like a kind of like you're you're playing mind games with me or something. I doubt that that was in use, though. I have no idea. Well, he likes but, his Christmas song. I, well, I, mean, I think I'm right in saying that, that he recorded that song early 65, maybe even January. So maybe he was just watching the Christmas decorations coming down or something. And he just thought right. about the reindeer armies going home. Oh, yeah. we'll, ne- we'll never know. Um, <laughs> by the way, I do apologize for this banging of my microphone i'm trying to keep my cat away from the microphone the keyboard everything so uh yeah all the kitty cat armies are invading yes. my, my <laughs> podcast. they're not going home yeah <laughs> they're not going home um so i'm sorry and i did i did catch you off but you know i was interested you mentioned ginsburg right. earlier and i mm-hmm. think yeah he's been a a huge um influence hasn't he that you know side of of Dylan, as you say, the the queer side of of Dylan, which is not really remarked on, I don't think, uh, in things that I've read. I, I I don't know actually that if people have written about it much. I think there's a there's a definite line you can see that goes directly from Whitman to Ginsburg. Ginsburg writing Howl mm-hmm. is writing about America. The other you know the beat side of it, all the things that don't get said, the things that don't get noticed, that can't get said. But he's spilling it out in these long lines. And then you get, you know, that, that leads you right to what, what Dylan is doing. And of course, Dylan's a magpie, right? He's, we know he's taking from, stealing from everything he can find. And I think, you know, it's, it's clear. Lots of people have talked about the beat poetry influence, but I think there's, there's something that is interestingly queer about that, the sort of gesture of, of taking in the whole world, at least it, it can certainly be read that way. And yeah, I think a lot of, Dylan's mid sixties work is 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 sort of almost in kind of conversation with get what Ginsburg Ginsburg is doing. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I watched No Direction Home um, again recently because I know that you you, you quoted it in mm-hmm. one of your uh, papers that I read, and yeah. I thought, oh God, I haven't re- seen this in um, some some years. And Ginsburg says of Dylan, I just love this. Um, he had become a column of air, a shaman. <laughs> With all yes. his consciousness focused on his breath, I thought, "What a great description!" You know, we flounder around trying to, you know, be articulate about Dylan, but I yes. thought that was that. So- yeah, that 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 is really wonderful. And Ginsburg's so in love with him. You know, I mean, everybody's in yes. love with him, right? Yes. So, but there's that yeah. that sense of that beauty. I was thinking about No Direction Home too, thinking about talking to you guys on the the, the podcast. And realizing, I think the last time I watched No Direction Home, when after Dylan won the Nobel Prize, it was lovely and I felt really kind of happy about it. And I knew I was, you know, asked by friends at Penn State to do a little, uh, be part of a symposium on that. But I watched, we watched the first half of No Direction Home and how fabulous that was. And then I watched it the next time I needed it was after Trump got elected, right? Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like, it's both this, 
it's such a great film. I mean, it really, it, you know, it's 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 a it's a film that manages to build up the 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 mythical image of him, but just sort of makes you a part of it and makes you want to kind of go with it too. What Trumpian elements did you find in the in the second half? Well, I didn't. I just. I guess it's it's interesting. It's just I always find the first half of No Direction Home so it's like my fantasy that I probably had is like a thirteen year old girl of like if only I could have been alive in the sixties in Greenwich Village wandering around with all of his sort of friends and saying like yeah yeah you know yeah he stole all my albums it was great you know it's a sort of sense of that, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that the, the artist coming into being and then and it's not like the second the second half is great in terms of the concert footage and a lot but it's somehow the the first half is like the the age of innocence right of yeah. um, i remember when i was in my kids love new york there that we, we go to visit my family and my mother in philadelphia around outside philadelphia every year and we try to get to new york city and we have not this year obviously going with them to Greenwich Village. And I remember the time I discovered there is a Dave Van Ronk street, a tiny little street <laughs> been renamed after Dave Van Ronk. And it just made me very happy. It's funny. I was, uh, I was watching the, uh, the very end of it uh, the, the other day and uh, my wife um, uh, had been out and, and came home and, and it was the San Francisco press conference, I think, mm-hmm. the series of press conferences right at the end where you've seen Dylan make this journey from innocent cherubic young boy coming to Greenwich Village mm-hmm. through to being one of the most famous people in the world with people asking him to, you know, suck on his glasses and things. <laughs> and, but, and she said, God, he looks so young. And actually, I thought, having seen him in his cherubic phase, that, you know, four years later, he looked terrible. He looked kind of like an old man. Of course, we now know what he looks like as an old man. Right. But, but he went through, it was like worse than being president of the United States. You know, they always have those before and after pictures. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because it it, it is, isn't it the weight of a generation's desire for him to be everything you know, to be everything for the folk scene, for politics, for, and I love uh, Joan Baez in No Direction Home is just fabulous. She is fantastic. And what she says, the moment where she says like, you know, I still meet people and they're still like, is Bob going to come to the concert? And she's like, he never came. You don't understand. He never came. Like that sense that, that he was moving on um, and he was reacting against this huge wave of desire towards him for, for him to be something. And he's always been, or, you know, he's ornery, right? He's going to do not what people want him to do. Mm-hmm. And you can really like see that developing there, but it probably goes with the aging as well. I think. Yeah. He turns 25 on, on that 66 tour in, in Paris. Oh it's insane to think he's that young. I mean, there's that throwaway line in, is it sitting on a barbed wire fence from mm-hmm. from sixty five? It's just you know this woman I got. She's killing me alive. She's making me into an old man. And man, I'm not even twenty five. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's the pop the popular thing that's that's doing it. I think because uh, again, my, my wife came in. And she said, "Oh, I didn't realize it was that he was that it was that Beatlesque. It's, right. it's the bit where the people are you know putting their hands through the the limousine window with yes. uh, and, yeah. and and yeah. demanding." 
the, an autograph. And I'm saying, I'm not going to give you an autograph. <laughs> Why do you want my autograph? And, but it's that sort of stuff that you can see is. Uh, you can see it, but you, also, you can see that the nice moments, which are sort of like when he's talking to the, the young girls in the Manchester yeah. concert who were just like, I just really liked it better when it was just you and a guitar. And there were moments of a sort of a, a real kind of human Dylan coming through too, where um, mm. that relationship with, with what fans want from him is obviously huge. The revealing comment in that that autograph section is this, if you needed my autograph, I'd give it to you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sails way over their heads. Right. Yeah. It's like that's the... He like that, that that Dylan at that point in time thinks he knows what everybody needs, and he's not going to give it to them. And that kind yeah. of come out in a lot of these, a lot of the, the music. I mean, I I don't know now if you guys have talked like something that comes out later in the seventies. Like, is your love in vain? I mean, is mm. that like that's just you know? Can you cook and sew, make flowers grow? Can you understand my pain? Are you willing to risk it all, or is your love in vain? I mean, I want that to be a joke, but like it's not clear to me that that's a joke. I oh, yeah. um, don't think it's a joke. That, that, that's really bad. You know, that's not the way people should be thinking about gender relations. <laughs> no, the only thing I can say, in, in, and it's not even in its defense, is that it's uh, honest. I, I yeah. believe it's absolutely, totally truthful. Right. Uh, it's just like saying, if you don't believe in Jesus, you've got a heart of stone mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and fuck you. Right. And, right. Uh, and okay. if you don't believe in me you know, and aren't willing to have, you know, clean and sew and have babies, mm-hmm, well, fuck mm-hmm. you. Right. It's, right. it's chilling. But, but if, if you're not going to walk up to me so gracefully and take my crown of thorns, <laughs> I'm not going to be there for you. You know, it's that deeply depressing for me the first time I heard that song. Um, and also made me think about like, why do I, you know, when I was 20 or whatever, why do I always go for the Dylan boys, right? Like, what, what's wrong with <laughs> the Dylan boys are dangerous, you know? <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, you, I also read this paper that you wrote about uh, the Joyce Carol Oates story, where there's a kind right. of a Dylan-like character in it. Well, what is it that speaks to women about that. I mean, it's the man in the long black coat. That's what I thought about when I read yeah. what you said about the Joyce Carol Oates story. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really complicated. I don't think he is. A, someone was reading the character in that story. It's called, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Brilliant story. Re- really quite chilling story about a young woman who kind of goes off with this, this really terrible guy. And it's very, the story is very much about a, the pop music she's listening to in the early 60s. Um, and she's, you know, she's just into the beat. It's about kind of sexuality. And she ends up sort of going off with this guy who's basically threatening her and her family. And he's a kind of, I don't really think he's that much of a Dylan figure, but he's an older guy who's sort of dressed up like all the boys she goes out with at, at junior high or high school. And there's, I think the thing about the, the it's the, the, the threateningness which comes through um, in a story like that, and you can read the story as a sort of about the early 60s, a kind of innocence, JFK before JFK gets shot, a kind of a early rock and roll, having fun down at the, the the drive-in versus the like the scary, nasty world of assassinations and 
whatever is coming in to kind of to to take the place of that early 60s version and Bob Dylan is the avatar of that right he's the one who will tell you he'll tell you the answer is blowing in the wind but also he'll tell you about Medgar Evers and Hattie Carroll and hard rain's gonna fall and I did you know I'm not sure I'm I'm making a lot of sense about the story itself I think the story is much more complicated than that but that version of the dangerous guy who's also right Right. The thing you said about honesty, right? Like he's, he sees the world as it is and he's, he's writes these incredible songs about them. And it happens that women, you know, need to give him shelter from a storm, right? Like there's this, it's like, I keep saying it's complicated, but it's, it's very complicated. Mm. I mean, did you have back when you were a, uh, a teenager in Philadelphia, a teenage girl in Philadelphia, were there any other teenage girls who, who had your fascination with Oh, Bob? yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's my, I mean, my, my, one of my best friends, my friend Suzanne, who I'll give a shout out in this, um, who, cause who also has moved to London and lives and works at, um, Senate House Library, um, mm-hmm. in London. Uh, she and I were music friends and the thing that brought us together, I think it was, was Bob Dylan actually was realizing I, I kind of came into high school, didn't have a lot of friends, realized she was like listening to some, I couldn't have been even listening. Right. But I somehow figured out that she liked Dylan and we, and, and the, the comic strip Doonesbury. I don't know if you guys know this. It was, a, sure. a, I was, yeah. I was like, Oh, she has the same taste as I do. And I, I, she can be my friend, but yeah, I think it's, it was more the the guys and who I knew in high school who were generally more into music than young women, and I think that's part of the whole collecting, you know, needing to be. I mean, it's, I think it's still true with Dylan people. Is um, I am not a Dylan completist, you know, I, and it goes for the live stuff too. I have not seen him, but I've seen him about four times. But it's it's much more of a guy thing, more of a guy thing. Yeah, I don't think I ever <laughs> discussed um, music with. Uh with girls in high school. But then again, I had trouble talking to girls <laughs> in, in general. What about, I mean, were there any songs which you sort of ingested as a teenager, which then you reevaluated massively as an academic? Uh, well, yeah, I, I hope that I don't, I, I hope that I don't really reevaluate things as an academic. I think that the two, my, my, you know, my critical faculty and my just being in the world are pretty much part of the same thing. Mm. But like, besides, like I did, no, most of the things I sort of recognized were a problem, but I still liked them earlier, <laughs> right? So, so just like a woman took me a little. I think it was actually, <laughs> I think it might have been seeing Annie Hall. Do you remember the oh, gotcha. yeah, yeah, scene yeah. in Annie Hall where, um, you know, she's she's reciting it and you know, and that I think that sort of thought, oh my god, this this is a really bad song. <clears throat> isn't it? It's yeah. really like, I need to go back and kind of think about this because of the way it's being used. But um, most of the, most of the songs that I initially loved, I still love. I just might sort of think about them in slightly different ways too. But then like, you know, I loved Under My Thumb by The Stones. I was like, that's a great song. And then I, at one point I was, had to do my brother, um, a professor of his, when he was in law school, was a big, brilliant feminist scholar, um, named Drusilla Cornell came over to our house for dinner and she was like, the Rolling Stones are terrible, you know, and this is when I was like 12 or something, maybe a little bit old, like 13. Mm. And she was like, they're terrible. If you listen to like, you know, look at black and blue, look at the kinds of songs they write. And I was like, but under my thumb, it's just a really good song. It, I, I think it was the thing which made me have to think about what does it mean 
to be a feminist, but also a fan of, of, of music that might be lyrically hard to um, defend at times. I mean, there was a lot of that at that time. I mean, I, I always think of Under My Thumb along with things like We Can Work It Out, which is a deeply unpleasant, passive-aggressive song. Oh, my God. Um, oh, this is so upsetting. I'm going to have to go. Well, this is just, I've never found anyone who agrees with me, but but listen to We Can Work It Out. You know, try to see it my way. It is, it is not a song about reconciliation at all. I, I, you know, you've said this before on the podcast, Luke, and I'm going to take issue with you this time. Just that I think he's he's somebody who's sort of tearing his beetle hair out it, it, trying to communicate. I don't. I don't actually see it as a passive aggressive thing. I, I, I just. Well, you know what? I feel the same way about that song as "Under My Thumb." In that, it's a great song. But but it's also but that's it's different though. I mean, I, I'm with you, Carrie, on this totally. I think it, that's not what it's not a passive aggressive mean. I mean, there's. I am good at noticing passive aggression. I don't think that's what we can work it out is about. I mean. But I'll go back and listen. I will listen again <laughs> to see. The thing that I've read in, I think, Revolution in the Head is the, the background to that song was that Jane Asher had just started making it as an actress. And Paul McCartney really didn't like the fact right. that she wanted this career, that she was going off mm-hmm. touring and things. He wanted someone to be at home there for him when he got back from touring Japan. And the, the attitude is very much, you know, try and see it my way. Right. If, if this right. relationship goes south, hey, I did all I can. I'm the man earning the, earning the living, being a Beatle. You know, I, I can't get away from that climate. You have, you, well, again, that's the same sort of thing. Like, you can't get away from it because you you know historically what it's about. But right. is the song, I think the song is fairly... Honestly, listen to just look at the lyrics and, and, and tell me how, how a song about reconciliation... No, if you didn't know... Try and yeah. see it my way. It's very bouncy. Try and, try and see it my way is the same kind of thing as, I mean, you can go back to the mama you've been on my mind or all the yeah. other, like, like a sort of a moment of sympathy that's actually a power play. But actually we can, I mean, try and see it my way doesn't, like, that's, that's a question. That's a kind of plea, right? Mm. I, think, I think that you do need to know the historical background in order to. Maybe, maybe that's been, that's polluted my enjoyment. But, but um, what's the next line? But only time will tell if I am right or I am wrong. That's, that's, mm. that's when the passive aggressive begins yeah, for me. I, <laughs> it's actually great. It's great to be hearing, like, thinking about men being passive aggressive because usually in songs or in is in novels, it's often women who are put in the place of the passive aggressive one. Whether it's like the you know, I, I, I have a, a project which I'm sure I'll never do on the passive aggressive heroine in the ninth in the nineteenth century novel because there's so many passive aggressive heroines in that. <laughs> but um, it, it, it's interesting to think about a beetle having to be passive aggressive instead of just like. But oh, the like beetles it. were sort of fa- famously passive aggressive with each other, weren't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, or or even if you if you see the uh, John and Bob mm-hmm. in the back of the limousine. Right, uh, you know, uh, that's all they're doing is being passive aggressive with each other. It seems to me they're they're both, yes, you know, trying absolutely. to amuse and cut each other's balls off. I know, I know time. this this jockeying for power, which is a completely different dynamic than old poor old Donovan with Dylan. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like there's the no contest dynamic where you know, and then there's the actually which one of them is going to come out on top dynamic. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, just to keep to the, the, the topic of, of women, is one of the things I just mm. rewatched from the more recent The Rolling Thunder review movie is the great moment with Joni Mitchell where they're playing with her mm. and Dil- they're playing Coyote. They're just yeah. a, it's a little 
scene of them doing kayak. And, and there's something just really fantastic about seeing Dylan just getting the guitar chords on this. I'm, I'm not a musician. I don't know, you know, but mm. really complicated stuff to play in this mm. amazing song that was just written just about the tour that's actually happening. Yeah. Joni's so brilliant. I, I think what you guys should do is actually devote a session to Joni, get someone on to talk about Joni. Yeah, sounds good. Well, we're both huge Joni fans. And, yeah. and we've, uh, we've talked about that scene because Bob is like, he's, he's actually sitting below her, isn't he? If, or yeah. At least he seems mm-hmm. to be below her in my mind. Like mm-hmm. he's, it's so rare that he's, he's yes. devoting all his complete attention to, a woman singing a song. It's, right, uh, right. And absolutely. And, you know, and, and Joni's stuff is also so great about the complications of basically, you know, trying to be a, a, a brilliant genius musician, heterosexual woman in that mm. crowd, you know, like a mm, lot of her mm. songs are about that on some level. And, and I love her sensibility about it. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. The, the way mm. it's sort of, I mean, formed, as you say, on that tour, uh, and it's supposed to be uh, well, the, you know, the word is it was about Sam Shepard, right? Uh, you know, right. He's the on cowboy. the uh, yeah. the cowboy yeah. uh, brushing the the mare's mm-hmm. uh, tail or whatever it is. I know I don't know which end one end of a horse from the other. One, <laughs> <laughs> I know as what a horse's as, ass looks like. As long as you're okay with your cat, that's <laughs> exactly. And I do apologize about uh, background background sounds. Um, uh, there was something you said before, and I don't know if there's anything more to be said about this. Again, mm-hmm. talking about male. Oh, there he is. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, buddy. Oh, god, Jesus. Can you hold on? I'm just going to let him out. One sec. Okay. 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 Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Good. Good. That touch of realism. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Well. Okay. The lengths I went to to make sure I'm recording somewhere where my dogs can't be heard. <laughs> Hi, I'm back. Um, I was going to ask, yeah, you were talking about mansplaining and male uh, Dylan fans explaining to you, because you've written quite a lot about Dylan, but I'm interested in, in what what are they explaining? Well, not really. I've, I have gotten, after I, I gave this talk, it was really interesting, this um, psychoanalyst uh, invited me to give a talk at this salon, which usually has psychoanalytic speakers, but he'd read something I'd written on Dylan and he wanted me to come. And I said, like, great, I'll talk about Dylan's meanness, um, Dylan's nastiness. And hmm. he said, can we call it Dylan's rage? And I said, no, I don't want to call it rage because rage is a much, that's like the political Dylan, right? That's kind of making it into a thing we should all be feeling rage about the political situation we're in when actually I want to talk about him just being really mean, you know, like, a, and th- I mean, that wasn't a mansplaining thing, but after I gave this talk, it was really, it was, it was fun. There was, you know, it was a kind of interesting crowd. I got some letters from, from people just telling me what I, you know, who somehow found my address, like literally like letters from in the mail saying like, I found your talk really interesting, but what you didn't notice or what you didn't, you know, kind of, uh, neglected to to notice these three songs that no one else knows about. Whatever it was, I can't even remember. Oh. Exactly. So I actually, to be honest, I haven't come in for a lot of that in my recent life. But it's it's obviously always there. And I think if you engage in a certain kind of Twitter conversation, you will yeah. it all the time. Yeah, yeah. And you you teach literary theory, and I think you mm-hmm. said. Uh, a, a, in an email that you actually use Dylan to teach, and I can't I remember. Use, it's sort of giving away the tricks of my trade, but <laughs> I will. Um, like I, I, what I use is really just from the, the the verse from Tangled Up in Blue, 
to get people thinking about the effects of what reading can do. It's kind of more a pep talk, <laughs> for, you know, mm-hmm. for why it's so great to read literature. I opened up a book of poems and every one of those words rang true and glowed like burning coal pouring out of every page, like it was written in my soul. And getting students to think about the, the, the language he uses for that is just brilliant. Because if something's written in your soul, it's already there right? It's like you're just, re- you're discovering something that you knew all along. And I think most great songs, at least for me, are like, oh my God, that's when you hear something the first time. And you're like, it's somehow like I've been waiting for the song to appear, the platonic form of song. And there's, mm-hmm. I think he's really capturing that about how literature can do that. You can read a novel and be like, this is me, even though it's happened to Jane Eyre in the Victorian age. You know, mm-hmm. it's, and so I, I, I love that. I love that. I love the whole song, obviously, but I love that verse. I wonder, is there, is there can we uh, any, think of uh, a, a popular songwriter or a, you know, a songwriter who uh, we, we all know who he uses so many literary references in his songs? Because I mean, it's pretty outrageous just to, just to do that. You know, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, I mean, right. it, Walt Whitman, it goes, it goes on and on and on. Uh, or if not, if not references, things that he's stolen. There are, I think there are a lot of, you know, indie bands that sort of pick But up. there are now. But I there mean, I'm talking oh, about, right, let's go right. back to 64, oh, yeah, yeah, 64, yeah. 65. No, I don't, I'm not, I, don't, I don't really know, except for, you know, people putting old, I mean, some old folk songs are like Jerusalem or whatever. You know, it's like you sing Jerusalem, you sing Blake. I was the one when I was at college, Ginsburg was still alive and he came and gave a, gave a talk and it was amazing. It was packed out. But he, at the end, he just had a singing Blake's Jerusalem all together, you know, in this sort of, I think the, the I, I, for me, I think the lines between the kind of high culture, you know, literary reading of Dylan and just the fact that the, this stuff is out there, it's important to people and it's important to people in all sorts of ways um, are not that those lines between, you know, popular culture, high culture are not very strong for me. I don't really care about them very much so i mean i think the, the the things that dylan does best lyrically i mean i do i love all the i love the references but they're not what make it for me those you know by ezra pound and mm. T. obviously my ears prick up as a young person who wants to read poetry but that's that's not why the song is great are there any Dylan songs that, uh, you know, going back to your teenage uh, years yeah. and onward that have really changed for you over the years that you've sort of thought, oh, God, now I get it? Yeah, that's, that is a really interesting question. I mean, I think Blood on the Tracks, when I first heard it, I mean, it, it's interesting. I just think that, you know, when as you go along in life and you have relationships, going back to an album like that, that is... Uh, you know, and it's such an intense breakup album. It just, it hits you in different ways. So I think probably a song like Tangled Up in Blue, which I like when I first heard, but going back to that whole album and, and thinking about after sort of going through relationships and seeing like the, the ways in which what you want or what you think a relationship is about changes. I, I loved Idiot Win when I first heard it and I loved all of me and Dylan. And then at a certain point I was like, I actually can't listen to Idiot Win anymore. It's too, it's just too harsh. It's brilliant, but it's, it, it's really hard to listen to because it's so, you know, it's so raw. 
Is It Rolling Bob Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster, stuck inside Immobile. Engineered by Ben Tatt and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. There's too many people, too many to recall. I thought some of them were friends of mine. I was wrong about them all. Well, the road is rocky and the hillside's mud. Up over my head, nothing but clouds of blood.